This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland's Tuesday Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Heartland Senior Fellow and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. Today, I'm stepping outside my normal comfort zone of environment and climate policy, ethics, and economics to discuss what we do and don't, in fact, know about the pandemic, the economic impact of the shutdowns, and various policy responses, and what the left and the right have gotten wrong about them. Why am I taking you on this ask? Because recently, at a monthly event hosted by the Institute for Policy Innovation, I heard a very insightful talk from Donald Luskin, Chief Investment Officer of Trend Macro. Aside from this role, he's a frequent contributor to various national publications, including the Wall Street Journal. I thought Heartland listeners would find Luskin's discussion equally interesting. Donald, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Don, before we jump into a discussion of your analysis of the economic impact of COVID pandemic and the associated government shutdowns and policy responses, please tell us a little bit about your background, your past economic work, including briefly uh, a fairly notable clashes you've had with New York Times Paul Krugman, and what Trend Micro does and how you approach economics and policy. Great. Well, I've been in uh, investment management for almost 40 years, and was associated very early on with the creation of index funds and a lot of the the technologies that have transformed the way professional and normal individual investors invest. Trend Macro is a very specialized advisory firm. Uh, Our clients are other investment advisors. So you could say we're an investment advisor to investment advisors. We give uh, them ideas about the economy, valuations, political developments, uh, whatever it takes for them to form their strategy. Now you bring up the unpleasant topic of Paul Krugman. Uh, <laughs> back back in the uh, early 2000s when blogging uh, was was a whole new thing. So this was pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook. You know, the, you know these, these worlds were, were just getting formed. I, I guess you could say, looking back on it, that I inadvertently invented a whole new category of journalism, which is now very common. It's called fact-checking where every time Paul Krugman would release one of his columns in the New York Times, I and a network of compatriots who called ourselves the Krugman Truth Squad would, within a few hours, have it completely fact-checked, dissected, and debunked. And uh, that resulted in a number of very interesting uh, embarrassing retractions that Krugman had to make in the New York Times. It, uh, It created two changes in the New York Times correction policies. And uh, all I can say is with people like Krugman, anything you can do that keeps them from lying makes them less powerful. So that's a good day's work. I couldn't agree more. So, Don, moving on to the topic, what are the key lessons that we have or should have learned about the pandemic? Because you think, you know, at at the talk you gave, You'd indicate you thought we'd learned some important lessons. We'd never do certain things again. Um, I was a little bit more pessimistic in that regard. But what do you think we should have learned from the pandemic? What does traffic research data, of all things, show about the shutdown and the various policy responses? And what does it tell us about the resilience of the American economy? Because that was the key point of your message. Right. 
Got it. Well, the, there, there's, uh, this, this will be you know, potentially a long answer to a short question, but the, uh, I, I think the w- one thing we learned is the immediate response to the arrival of the coronavirus in the world was to put the whole world into quarantine, into lockdown, and that created a very substantial cessation of economic activity around the world, uh, which by you know any way of measuring it, like GDP or unemployment, uh, was as bad or worse than the Great Depression. It was just briefer, uh, but it was a hard shutdown in the world economy. And when you shut down uh, an economic engine that's running very quickly, like like it was uh, when the pandemic first hit, uh, it's difficult to get it restarted. And we've been struggling with that now for you know, we just passed the one year anniversary. So have we learned that that was an effective or an ineffective? public policy response. Well, the first way of looking at that would be to say, well, did it even work in its own avowed goal of controlling the spread of the virus or controlling the number of fatalities from it? And I guess we'll, you could say we'll never know because we don't have an alternative planet Earth where we could go back and do it differently and compare the results. But we do know that in different countries, at different times, in different counties, different zip codes, there were different lockdown policies. So uh, famously, uh, you know, Sweden, for instance, among the European nations, had a relatively light lockdown policy. Uh, within the United States, New York had a very hard lockdown policy. Uh, Florida had a less hard, more Sweden-like one. So we can tell country by country, state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, how lockdown you really were. And we don't do that by looking at what laws were passed or what some governor or county supervisor commanded you to do. We look at what actual behavior was. Did people really stay home when they were told to? And we judge that by looking at mobility data derived from tracking your uh, cell phone. Now, it's a creepy thing, but it's a reality that every time you leave the house with your cell phone, uh, Google and Apple and a bunch of these social media giants are uh, tracking you. They swear it's anonymized, but they can tell. Now, did you go to a grocery store? Did you go to a pharmacy? Did you go to a park? Did you go to a rapid transit station? And it's with that kind of knowledge that they can hopefully push to you advertising that is relevant to your interests and where you are at the time. So that's why they do it. But we can use that to determine how locked down different places were. So we we can see that not just were the laws in New York harsher, but the reality of the behavior was more locked down in New York than in Florida. So did New York get a better result than Florida? No. It got a worse result. Wait, wait, wait. If you look across... Wait, before before you go on, mm-hmm. explain where you the the, the the traffic data came from, because you, you had a specific source for the, uh, right. the data. Right, right. Um, you can download the raw data yourself from Google, uh, but uh, I like to use the University of Maryland Transportation Institute as my source. They have a formula for taking the fire hose of data from Google and turning it into what they call a social distancing index. So if you want a handy-dandy uh, thing, just, just do a Google search for University of Maryland Transportation Institute, and it'll be your first hit, and you'll get to see this index updated every couple of days. Okay. So if you look at the 50 states in the District of Columbia and lay them out from the beginning of the lockdowns, or you can do it, you know, every 30 days, or, you know, pick a particular month, anything anything you want, uh, there's never been a time when it was effective, when it turned out that locking down more 
controlled either cases or deaths. And in fact, the evidence is ever so slightly that the more lockdown you did, actually the worse you did. Now, it's hard to get at cause and effect relationships, but at least by the numbers, it looked like lock, looks like locking down killed people just from coronavirus. Now, we know that locking down killed people in other dimensions because when you lock down, you make it harder for people to get to emergency rooms when they need to. They don't get to get their cancer screening. If they lose their job, they could become depressed or resort to substance abuse. We know that suicides went up everywhere in the world over the last year. So this attempt to save lives cost lives. And this result is not just my idiosyncratic result from crunching obscure data. This same statistical technique I've described has been used now in three peer-reviewed, highly prestigious articles in medical journals, including The Lancet. So one of the reasons I believe that we're not going to make the mistake of doing hard lockdowns ever again is that even though politicians and you know, high-profile public health officials find it very difficult to ever admit fault, they see the same numbers I do in the journals they read, and they know this stuff just didn't work, and they're just not going to do it again. And one piece of evidence for that is that today on a worldwide basis, new coronavirus cases are essentially as high as they've ever been. And yet the world is as unlocked down as it's ever been since this began. So people are just giving up on that as a uh, public health approach. So I think that's, that's one important thing we've learned. Now, you can use this same method to look at other public health interventions to see if they worked. And one that's very controversial and it's become politicized is whether you should wear a mask or not. Now, uh, you can... Uh, there have not been all that many, but there have been a number of polls uh, taken in all 50 states about mask wearing. And if you correlate mask wearing, at least people, what people tell pollsters, to the results in different jurisdictions, it definitely worked. And, it, and it's a strong result. And the nice thing is those awful little masks, you know, they cost a dime. You're not going to cause a depression by wearing a mask. You do cause a depression by locking down. Locking down doesn't work. Wearing masks does. Locking down is expensive. Wearing masks is cheap. How nice. The thing that's cheap is the thing that works. So these are a couple of the things we've learned. Um, I think another thing that it's really important that we, we – take on board in this time when there's you know, so much, our spirits have been so crushed by this, not only by uh, the devastation of the lockdowns, but just by the prevalence of sickness and death. I mean, it's, it's been a tough year. Uh, so I think one thing we should do to take heart is to celebrate how amazingly resilient we've been in the world. Uh, human beings are just unbelievably resilient and resourceful and smart. And you see it in a bunch of different ways. You see it in the development of a number of vaccines that didn't exist 14, 15, 16 months ago, uh, are now you know, pretty easily available. They are absolute miracles of modern science that have been developed in unbelievably short timelines. In fact, the, uh, the Moderna vaccine was literally developed 48 hours after the Moderna company got the sequencing of the coronavirus uh, particle from China. And so that vaccine was completely designed and ready to go from a science standpoint before the first American had ever even died of coronavirus. That was all the way back a year ago, January. And the rest of the time has just been figuring out how to manufacture it cheaply and quality assure it and get it approved by the various regulators. But 
man's knowledge it was just you know, we were just there on the spot. Another thing that makes me really want to celebrate is how rapidly ordinary working people have been able to take on board new technologies that they'd never used before in order to get through this. Did you know that according to Department of Labor statistics, 22% of the employed people in the United States are working from home because of coronavirus? That's more than one in five people. And these are people who weren't working from home a year ago, who didn't know how to work from home, who couldn't work from home, who didn't know, their employer wouldn't let them. There was no technology to enable it that they knew about. So as soon as this was forced on us, all of a sudden we learned, wow, there, there's this thing called Zoom. And it had just been sitting there and no one had ever used it. But, whoa, this is going to save our lives, our careers at least. And it has. We're now all experts. Uh, and we can now do business at a level where a year later, you know, we're essentially back to U.S. GDP where it was before the pandemic with one out of five people working from home when a year ago they didn't know how. Whoa, you know, pat yourself on the back for that one. So uh, I think those are those are some of the, the lessons I'd like to highlight. Well, how, you know, you talked about it, it, it was bad as the Great Depression. How, you know, how rapidly did the economy fall off? How deep did it go? Um, uh, recession, depression, what, what do you want to call it? And how uh, how quickly... Uh, compared to previous uh, depressions, recessions, have we responded, recovered? Right. Well, the um, in the modern era, so let's just say after World War II, there have been uh, 11 official recessions, including the one we're in right now. And with one exception, they all experienced recoveries within about three calendar quarters at max, uh, and and I, I define that uh, I define recovery as getting back to what GDP was before the recession started. So the recoveries from all of them have been have taken either uh, one quarter, two quarter, or three quarters. About you know, two and a half quarters is, is about average. The one big exception to that was the recession we experienced in 2008 and 2009 that was associated with the banking crisis. That was a very unusual recession. It uh, it took two whole years, eight quarters, to get back to prior GDP. And that's because, I guess, it's because when you have a banking crisis, it just takes out so much of the financial infrastructure that's so critical in the modern world. And uh, for, for whatever reason, you know, it took eight quarters to recover. Now, that's what everyone was expecting when the coronavirus recession hit, because we always expect to happen again the thing that happened the very most recent time. And until this, the most recent prior recession was that horrible one in 2008 2009. Now, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about recessions, though. I've been thinking about them, and I've just been talking about them in terms of how long they last, how long it takes to get back to where you were. And so the Great Recession, 2008-2009, that took eight quarters to get back. Or you could look at it in terms of how bad was the drop from the prior peak. Well, the answer to that is we lost 4.1% of GDP. And that was considered a big deal at the time. So we lost 4.1% of GDP, took us two years to recover. In the experience that we had last March, April, May, we lost 10% of GDP. We lost two and a half times the GDP that we lost in the recession that we call the Great Recession. So it's like we, you just sort of run out of superlatives. What do you call this one? If that one was great, what do you call this one? Well, you call it a depression. 
losing you know, 10% of GDP is certainly a depression. However, it looks like we're going to get out of it. I mean, we'll, we'll know in about two weeks when they publish the latest quarter's GDP numbers. It looks to me that uh, we're going to get back to the prior peak GDP in the quarter that we finished two weeks ago, uh, the first quarter. And why is that? It's because even though the COVID recession was extremely deep, more than 10%, it only lasted about three months. There's never been a shorter recession or depression in history, anywhere ever. And when things are short, well, you, you can endure a lot of pain if it's for a really, really, really short time. So that's what we've experienced economically. We are coming out of it, and I want to just remind everybody what they probably felt a year ago when we were still under stay-at-home orders and what you felt maybe nine months ago, eight months ago, when we were first opening up and you'd, you know, you'd tentatively leave your house and you'd see, oh my God, all the lights are still out downtown and, you know, none of, none of my favorite restaurants are open and, you know, everybody, you know, half the people I know got laid off and, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we'll never come back. And if we do, no one will ever fly again. They'll never see a movie again. Oh my God, oh my God. Okay. Well, we've recovered. We've recovered, and it didn't take any. It didn't take any longer than any recession since World War II, except the prior one. So, I mean, this is uh, and they're, they're, you know, good on us. So we recovered fast from a, a much deeper uh, decline than previous. Um, and the reason is, you, as you discussed at the talk, um, this was sort of an exogenous uh, recession forced on us by policy, not something. Um, uh, endemic to the economy itself, right? Yeah, so a good contrast would be the 2008-2009 one where it was deeply endemic. It, it was just the accumulated rot and over-leverage in the banking system. That, that was just waiting to fall over and take us all down. So you said uh, at the talk that the left has gotten some things wrong about the pandemic, but so has the right. What... Uh, uh, some of my uh, some of the listeners might not be happy to hear this. So let's let's go through a couple of those things. Yeah. Well, look. Let's 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 just be honest and, and say that you know we're we're in a time of very intense politicization of everything, and you know people on the left and people on the right have one thing in common, even if they think they don't. That thing they have in common is that your opinions about things are assigned to you by your party and by the media that represent your party, and. So some of the things I've just told you, uh, that lockdowns don't work, well, there are a lot of Democratic governors in blue states who are feeling pretty embarrassed about that one, and they're, they're never going to admit that. On the other hand, I've also told you that masks work, and uh, people on the red team aren't supposed to believe that. But you know, I'm going to follow the numbers. You know, I hate it when people say, follow the science. You know, well, Okay, I, I'm, I'm just showing you the numbers. <laughs> and masks work, lockdowns don't, and it, I'm, I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Those are the numbers. Now, you also talked about because the government didn't just have responses of lockdowns; they had uh, relief bills, uh, pandemic yep. recovery bills. Uh, you have indicated that you thought at least the first one was critical to helping us through the crisis, but later ones have not been so beneficial. Please explain. Well, the the ones that we did about a year ago, the first ones that resulted in the first stimulus checks and the first round of federally enhanced unemployment benefits, um, you can say we, I mean, obviously there are costs associated with it because you have to, uh, you know, 
go go into debt, which you know, theoretically at least someday someone's going to have to pay back. So it's not like these things are free, but no good thing is free. Uh, is a haircut free? But you get haircuts all the time, right? So the uh, the question is, was it worth it? Did it help? And well, I think the results speak for itself. You know, we should have never gone into lockdown, but given that we did, we needed to do something so that we had the financial resiliency to pull ourselves out of it. And we apparently have pulled ourselves out of it. Now, the problem is the second round of stimulus that was uh, signed by President Trump in his last month in office, and then the third round that was just signed by new President Biden, those were so far after the crisis had substantially passed, they're just completely unnecessary. And it's not always true that unnecessary things aren't good. It doesn't make them bad just because they're unnecessary. But uh, these, these are you know pretty large-scale interventions that uh, affect people's motivations and their incentives in ways where sometimes the law of unintended consequences can bite you. So it disturbs me to spend trillions of dollars over and over again when you don't need to. Because uh, there are probably other things someday that we could do with that money, and now we can't. Well, it's in one sense, it's not a, it's not our money that we're spending. You know, um, just going back a little bit ways in history, we had a whole revolution uh, that was inspired. At least one slogan was "No taxation without representation." I can't imagine less representation and more taxation than future generations. People who haven't even been born yet are going to be carrying debt for things that we spent now. Uh, they're not represented. <laughs> and that's not what this, yeah. uh, you know, how this well, you know, country is supposed that, to be. That's one, that, that's one way it can go. And another way it can go is those same people, for the reasons you've mentioned, can say, I repudiate that debt, in which people, in which case the people who held that debt as an asset uh, – lose their life savings. So one way or another, this is going to hurt. It's a question of who. Yeah. Uh, so are there lessons we should take away from this time in history? Uh, what do you think are likely to uh, – are, do you think we're going to have some disease-inspired lockdowns again? You've already indicated you thought probably not, but go into some more detail. Because, you know, frankly uh, – and I raised this question with you at the talk – that uh, I, I listen to what they're saying. You know, I just listen to the politicians every day. And, you know, uh, we in Texas and Flor and the people of Florida are Neanderthals because we ceased the lockdown. Evidently, you know, the people in South Dakota were always Neanderthals because they never locked down. Um, it seems to me uh, politicians are using this for more than just to protect people from, from disease, but it's a, it's a power play. And uh, I can see them doing something similar for say, and this is in my area, uh, climate change. They, you know, they're not going to de declare it a climate emergency. Every press outlet has decided it's no longer climate change; it's the climate crisis. Well, you know the kinds of policies that get implemented during crises. We've just been through one. Well, uh, fair enough. I mean, that's what they're trying to do. I mean, that that is a uh, time-tested way of uh, getting people to consent to uh, give up their personal sovereignty, um, to you know, say, you know, there's an emergency, you, you need to let the, the, the good king protect you. you know, I understand that. Uh, and so kings who want power manufacture emergencies when there aren't any. Uh, I only 
would ask you to consider that we haven't gotten to the point where people have 100% turned their brains off. So they can say climate emergency all they want and call it whatever they want. Uh, but you just look out your window and there's no climate emergency. You know, on the other hand, if you know people who are testing positive for coronavirus and it lays them up for two weeks and if you know some people who've died, well, then that doesn't necessarily qualify you to understand the scope of the problem, the degree to which it's a personal threat to you. You know, It's really hard to scope and scale these things, but at least there's some evidence for it. And it's such a good story because your own immediate well-being is at stake. It's this devil in the dark. It's, oh, my God, it's this little invisible particle. It might get me. Help me. Help me. Uh, climate stuff. I mean, I mean, only a, a, a sort of political slash religious zealot on that subject would believe that. I mean, calling that an emergency is just a sop to people who already believe in it. So I'm, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I think you're, you know, you're right to push back against that stuff. But I plead, I mean, don't let it scare you. Well, I hope it will. The, the claim of climate crisis doesn't scare me. The claim that they'll get away with foisting on us, that does scare me. I mean, you know, you hear elected representatives, fairly newly elected representatives, saying we have 12 years. The world ends in 12 years if we don't act now. Um, <laughs> It's like holy. You, well, you really, good. you I mean, really look, think if, if you, you really if you believe? If you don't support, if you don't support these people, then and obviously you don't, and I don't either. Uh, we should be very glad that they're just saying such incredibly stupid things. <laughs> what do you want them to say? Smart things? Yeah. No, we want to be rid of these people. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, you closed your discussion with one problem you did see on the horizon: the rise in actions of China. I'm also concerned about Biden's response to China since his administration seems willing to cede our longstanding commitment to defend Taiwan, our commitments to human rights, our economic leadership uh, uh, to Biden and company's vain pursuit of climate comedy and commitment from China. But those aren't those weren't your concerns with China. What what were you talking about? Well, I'm uh I am worried about uh, some, some of the things you mentioned. Uh, in particular, this wouldn't be the worst moment for China to make a move on Taiwan. You know, we, we, you know, we know they want to. You know, they, they don't make a secret about it. And it's less than a year ago that they made the move on Hong Kong. And that was very, very different in, in, in many ways. They uh, Arguably, they had a a complete treaty right to do that. I, I actually believe they did. That doesn't make it right, but it, it, was, it was not a violation of international law or anything. Uh, Taiwan is not a part of China by treaty. It is claimed to be a part of China, claimed by China. The Taiwanese people feel quite differently about it. And they've got you know, a lot of you know, they got a lot of jet fighters too, and Hong Kong didn't have any. So, it it would it would potentially be a dirty shooting war that obviously China could win just by sheer numbers, but it could be a mess. And China might be making the observation that we have a very divided uh, political environment in the United States, where it's really impossible to get a true consensus, no matter what the media tells you. Uh, that we have a uh, weak ruler who is quite aged and has a record for timidity. Uh, remember, he's the one in the room who didn't want to take out Osama bin Laden. 
So maybe this is the time. Now, if that happens, we're going to go through a very nervous period where President Biden has to decide whether to start a nuclear war over this. Now, because he would have to decide that, that's pretty big disincentive for China taking that risk, isn't it? So, you know, the, the, the very problem is the thing that has kept it from happening all along. However, let's say we get through that period. Well, do you have any idea what fraction of the world's semiconductors are made on that little island, Taiwan? The world would shut down again if China decided not only to take over Taiwan, but to uh, create an embargo. I mean, semiconductors are the new oil. Remember in the 70s, the Arab oil embargo? This could be the Chinese chip embargo. That would really hurt. No more F-150s for you, because uh, every pickup truck, every car, every everything has chips in it now. Yeah, well, you know, we had a mini example of that. I don't know uh, how closely you follow uh, the issue of rare earths, but we had a mini example of that around, uh, I think, 2009. Uh, right. Between Japan and China, uh, right. uh, yeah. fishing uh, a supposed fishing boat wandered into Japanese waters and was seized by the Japanese Navy. Uh, China said it was a fishing boat, let it go. Japan said, well, it's sure got a lot of weird electronic equipment. Uh, it's a spying ship, and it was in our territorial waters. They, of course, had disputes over that. And Japan said they weren't going to let it go. And uh, what happened was... China suddenly found they couldn't export any of their rare earths or their refined rare earths to Japan for use in electronics. And uh, Sony, Sanyo, Samsung, all the companies shut down. Uh, and within two weeks, Japan decided, oh, you know what? It, it is a fishing vessel. After all, we'll give it back. Uh, so China's already shown itself willing to use their critical um, – uh, stranglehold on rare, rare earths, and you indicate, uh, you know, they, that's required microchips, but microchips is still a separate thing. But they could do the same thing with microchips, and that's a scary right. prospect. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, big picture, if you could make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today? Well, it's one I, uh, I actually haven't mentioned so far. And that is that we've, you know, we've learned these lessons. We have it all behind us. And one of the side effects of all this, one of the side effects of being locked down and not being able to go out to dinner and, you know, just do all the things that ordinary people do with their money has caused people who normally don't save very much to save a tremendous amount of money. America saved over $3 trillion last year. That's a record, a big record, like 3X. At the same time, people got stimulus payments. If you lost your job, you got you know, special unemployment benefits, which on average were 25% more than you were making when you were working. And now that this thing is over and people are going to be eager to get back into their normal activities with each other, and most normal activities that people engage in involve spending money. And we got the money. So... This will be a very unique recession slash depression in that now that it's over, people didn't have to give up all their savings just to get through it. They accumulated savings in this recession. That's never happened before in economic history. We are on the verge of a, an economic boom, the likes of which we have never lived through. Now, it's not going to last forever, 
But my God, it's going to be a fireworks show in the next couple of years. A boom driven by consumption, not necessarily uh, technological revolutions or things like that. Well, don't discount the technological revolution that took place before the pandemic with the creation of tools like Zoom, but which everyone learned to use by necessity during the pandemic. So that's going to be a productivity revolution that we'll keep on giving for years and years and years as people learn new, will actually you know, take advantage of what they had to learn under force last year, which is how to work remotely. Some people just determined they like that better, that they're more productive, that they can get more done. They enjoy it more. You know, not everybody wants to hang out in an office and chat at the water cooler. You know? So this is, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, we, we've you know, discussed a lot of things that are, you know, that are risks and that are costs. And yeah. you know, obviously a lot of people got sick and died. It's terrible. But one of the come outs of this is we're going to have a productivity revolution based on a change in technology adoption, new tastes, new preferences, new ways of working. And we're going to decide how we want to work. We're going to decide voluntarily. And when people decide voluntarily how they want to work in the future, they're going to make that choice one at a time based on what makes them richer. And that all adds up. Do you foresee any risks of inflation from the boom? Pent-up savings being spent? I think there's probably going to be a little bump in prices over the next year because people are going to have a lot of money to spend and inventories got drawn down. Um, sellers you know, didn't want to hold a lot of inventories when they couldn't open their doors. So uh, there will be a period of, you know, scarcity is a big word, but uh, sellers will have more pricing power than buyers. So there will be a little period of rising prices. But I wouldn't mistake that for inflation. Inflation is when there's a you know, wholesale corruption of the currency, and so that the prices of all things, whether they're scarce or whether they're not, rises just because the value of the currency that they're priced in goes down. That's not what's happening here. Okay. Well, Don, we've been pleased you could be with us today. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. What a great honor. Thank you for inviting me. Listeners, thanks for checking out us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Don Luskin and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. And go frequently to our PolicyBot site, your one-stop shop for free market solutions to public policy problems. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts, tell your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. <laughs>